Welcome everyone. Talking to Mac on the Rock, Mac and the Rock on Twitter. I'm here on WSQF 94.5 Blink Radio Kibiscane. As you know, we started up the Statues and Stories Hours again. We had a little bit of a delay or a repose because our associate, Adam Levinson, wanted to rest during the impeachment trial. Uh, actually, it started during the rigged election of November the 6th and everything that led up to the raid on the Capitol and all those things that were consequential of a rigged election that nobody wants to believe is happening. But it happened whether we like to admit it or not, my liberal friends. There's just too much going on at 3 a.m. in very specific precincts in five swing states that are controlled by Republicans. State legislators balked and allowed these massive mail-in ballots and batches coming in with 90% Biden votes with no down ballots casts on the night of November the 5th and extending the mail-in ballots to, in some states, I think in Philadelphia, precincts alone received ballots the 5th and the 6th, I believe. Well, anyway, today we're going to talk about something different on Statues and Stories. You have to stay tuned for Adam's call. At right at 7 o'clock, I'm kind of like sitting back and watching everything that's happened in the last three or four months. And I was surprised that I wasn't commenting on the radio about it, per se. And I was uh, taken aback by the fact that, I don't know, was I like giving up or what? And uh, I don't know what about about what happened really was discouraging that I felt that Maybe my opinion wasn't going to be heard anyway, because we're those of us who think the way I do are pretty sure, I mean, pretty damn sure that the liberals will waste no opportunity to retain and gain power. Many, many, many uh, who are opposite of me politically don't really want to admit that Donald Trump successfully stole about 20% of their votes in the Democratic Party, and I would I'll venture to say another 20% were first-time registrars, first-time voters, that were also more likely to have been working-class, you know, blue-collar Democrats in interior states like Tennessee, Kentucky, North Carolina, uh, parts of Indiana, you know, parts of Oklahoma, Indiana, uh, Nebraska, all these people were the new deplorables. And the Democrats had to stop the bleeding. The perfect way to stop the bleeding is the blessing that they received from a communist country, the coronavirus. Gave them an excuse. You can see how Nancy Pelosi, her first acts, as soon as she won back the majority and was installed again by the, the dumbest of majority in the legislature to put her back as speaker. My God. I mean, it's a, it's a blessing for Republicans to have an idiot like her as speaker of the House. But she pushed mail-in balloting. And uh, many states followed suit. They're investigating Stacey Abrams now and Senator uh, 
Warnock or of Georgia, he gets to run again in because his was a special election. He gets to run again in two years, and he must be defeated in Georgia if Republicans plan on doing anything substantial with this country during the Biden administration. If indeed we take back the Senate and the House in a more clear-cut majority in both, you can see Biden resigning because of ill health or something like that. You can, it's going to be pretty obvious to everyone that he was, you know, anointed or appointed president, that he actually didn't win the election. But, hey, you know, it was bound to happen. You know, I know that back in the day of the hanging chads between Bush and Gore, you know, I kind of, although social media wasn't in existence and anything like that, so it was nothing real pronounced statement to make, but I often was commenting about the fact that, you know, you can eliminate paper ballots because of the hanging chad, but when you go to a computer, there's going to be scamming going on. And apparently Obama used this Dominion Machine uh, the drop and roll software program, sometimes called the Hammer. Apparently he used it. It was under his administration that it became obvious to him that he had access to it through the CIA, who apparently was using the Hammer software to rig foreign elections. And you can see why the Democrats, knowing this, could uh, accuse Trump of Russian collusion when, in fact, the United States CIA has rigged foreign elections before. And the Dominion Machines did have its origins in Venezuela because here in South Florida, we talked about it. And my men of, you know, Venezuelan friends have told me that they knew that Chavez rigged his elections and they couldn't stop any, they couldn't stop them. They didn't have the big tech that the United States has to be able to take it through the court system. I mean, Chavez replaced everybody. The parliament, Supreme Court, many of the municipal leaders were all Chavistas. So when you tell Americans that this had like a Venezuelan origin and Sidney Powell made that claim, you can see how Americans... Uh, who wanted Biden to be president, wouldn't take it seriously. So here in South Florida, we see a lot of anomalies that we know to be true, character traits of the of a communist. And we've been warning the United States since the 60s, me specifically since the 80s, as an older adult, always anti-communist, raised that way. And, you know, we were screaming into the wilderness. Nobody really cared what we said or what we did or what we were planning to do. Here we have it. We no longer control the state of Florida. Before, you used to have to win Dade County to win the Electoral College in the state of Florida. Not anymore. Now you got to win I-4 corridor and Dade County. And guess what? Republicans are not the majority in either place. Where Florida is still purple, barely barely red, more purple now, is, thank God for the, the bases and the military veterans that you know retire in the Jacksonville area and also in the area of Fort Pierce. Uh, I believe General Pierce was the founder of the Navy SEALs, and Fort Pierce is named after him. But you, you could tell we have this problem that Florida's slowly turning blue again. And now when New Yorkers moving down here, they might vote New York-style politics as Californians do in Texas. It's a very sad reality because liberalism is not just— uh, 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 a way of thinking because it applies to just about everything in their lives, not just voting, but there's a certain political bipolarity 
of liberalism that even liberals will not admit and can't stand when I talk about it. But they really uh, propose policies that are contradictory to the things that are necessary for those policies to stay effectual, plausible, and physical and fiscally responsible for the nation. Perfect example is their, their abject support for abortion. Well, if you support abortion, just open-ended, especially open-ended, it just drives down the birth rate of the very affluent class you need to support something else they propose, Social Security. So who's going to pay for Social Security tomorrow if our children don't have a lot of children? I know I'm having less children than my parents. They had three siblings, three boys. I've only had two. And they also promoted no-fault divorce, signed by Ronald Reagan in 1960. That also created a lot of single-parent families and households. And single women who may be married the first time they have a child, maybe not, but they're not likely to have a second child when they're single because it's the, the, that one child has been expensive and arduous. It's been arduous to raise one child when you're alone. And the man disappears, and he's off, he's off with a, a girlfriend, or it was just, uh, you know, a, a, a fling. They're not going to raise your children. Unfortunately, men, you guys are guilty of that. You don't raise your children and the children you have. So these families also stay sometimes just with one, the kangaroo family, the mom and the child in the pouch. And that also lowers the birth rate. And you can see it in Europe. You cross the pond. All these things are 20, 30 years ahead of us. Uh, they started getting rid of God right after World War II that with a church tax. And from that moment on, people had to pay a tax if they acknowledged that they were of a political affiliation, especially Catholic. The Catholic Church accepted this church tax. Why? Because they wanted to be included in the restoration projects within the Marshall Plan because a lot of these churches were bombed to, you know, and they were in possession of the Nazis. The Nazis gave back to churches on the condition that, hey, we're not going to rebuild them. So, uh, you know, Germany accepted a certain amount of debt consideration to the rest of Europe for their invasion of Europe itself, and they took decades to repay it. But the lion's share came from the Marshall Plan, from General Marshall's plan of, from the United States, backed by the dollar. And in that Marshall Plan was as high as 6% church tax. So you can see how atheism got its leg up in Europe, and Europe is basically secular today. The churches are there, they're restored, they're beautiful, uh, not to to disparage them in any way, but they don't have a lot of parishioners. On the other side of the, uh, the wall, in in eastern part of Europe, the Soviets, in a bizarre way, invigorated their faith at the same time, but it was clandestine because... Communism were basically promoting atheism. Atheism in that odd that liberalism also promotes and promotes secularism, which, as far as I'm concerned, is atheism. And in Europe, underground, um, there was a church, an Orthodox, a Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox affiliated church, and um, you know, as people starved and struggled and food line under communism in the cold winters. Deep inside, the soul of the Russian family that was being separated by divorce, by the way, 
under the one of the decrees of the, the manifesto was this no-fault divorce, where if you got divorced in Russia, the state took your property. In other words, instead of the man losing the home to the wife, it was both lose the home to the state. And the state basically supported the divorced woman. And, you know, Stalin uh, accelerated it. Lenin talked about it. He, be he believed it's one of his first, uh, one of, one of his first uh, proclamations, per se, was no-fault divorce. So I'm going to speak more about this in the days to come. Right now it's time for Statues and Stories. Statues and Stories, Adam Levinson, how are you today? Mac on the Rock, happy President's Day, how are you? Well, thank you for calling me the president because, you know, I'm, I am the president of Blink Radio, Kivas Kane, and uh, I'll never be president of the United States. And maybe marvelous uh, Ed Vidal will be, you know, it's never late for Ed. Is he around or is it just you and I tonight? It is you and I tonight. Maybe we'll get him next week. Maybe we'll get him next week. Is he asking for more money or something? Tell him we're only going to pay him five bucks. So this is a public service on a federal holiday, and we're glad to celebrate. Well, welcome. Tell us what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so this is an example of how this radio show and the website statutesandstories.com is very topical. So what, what was going on, and we won't talk about it in detail today, but last week was the impeachment trial in the Senate. And it was mentioned on Tuesday, and I think that was uh, February, whatever day it was, and, you know, basically last week, last Tuesday, uh, there was a reference that was made by one of the attorneys to, a, uh, to an event where a lecture was given, and that gave me some ideas to research this because I'd never heard about it before. So a lecture was given by James Wilson, and listeners of this show may be somewhat familiar with James Wilson. He was one of the most important founding fathers and mothers, and we'll talk about him in great detail today, but James Wilson was, and I'll give you an example of how important he was. Maybe this is a good way to start the show off. Uh, once I tell you what it's about. But now, wait a minute. This. Tell the audience which side of the which side of the impeachment was the House managers or was it the Senate defenders, Senate right. attorneys so, who mentioned uh, this lecture? Sure. So it was actually President Trump's attorneys cited to these lectures by James Wilson. And we're going to go into more detail later on. But the point is that, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about impeachment because uh, we've already talked about it. And at the end of the show, if we have time, we can go into the specific arguments. But here the idea is that, you know, I did not know. And it was not only that he gave a lecture, and that's not a surprise because he was the first he was the first university or the first law professor at the time it was called the College of Philadelphia. So he was the first law professor there at that university, which, of course, today is the University of Pennsylvania, which is an Ivy League school. So he was the first law professor there. But it's not just that he gave a lecture, but he gave a lecture, and this is what was mentioned during the Senate trial. He gave a lecture to tell you how respected he was to the president, to the first lady, to Martha, to the Congress, both houses of Congress, that's the House and the Senate, to the, the they were located at the time in Philadelphia. Uh, that was after they moved from New York, and we'll go into detail about uh, you know the background. But for 10 years, Congress was located and the president was located in Philadelphia. So, so he gives this lecture not just to the U.S. Congress, but to the the the, the legislature of the state of Pennsylvania, and they called it the the president of Pennsylvania. Today, it's the governor. So, the, I mean, it's, it's the, the it's the all of the establishment in Philadelphia at the state level and at the federal level, including the cabinet. 
and other esteemed ladies and gentlemen attended this lecture. You know, so, so today I'm sort of smiling and I'm scratching my head. Could you imagine, and I don't care if it's a Democratic president or a Republican president, and the lecture was on December 15th, 1790, and it was at 6 o'clock p.m. Can you imagine on 6 o'clock on a Wednesday, you know, today, all of Congress, the president, the cabinet, all going together to a function, a, you know, a social event? Apparently, apparently from what you posted on Statues and Stories, you were the brightest minds of all the colonies that attended. Okay, good point. So I'm going to do a trivia question, which no one will know the answer to, but it, it sort of illustrates to your observation how important James Wilson was. So when we talk about the founders, right, there are several documents. There's obviously the Declaration of Independence, 1776. There's the Constitution written in 1787. So there are only six individuals who signed both the Declaration and the Constitution a decade later. So Declaration 1776, the Constitution was written 1787. So only six people signed both documents. So to give you some idea of how important James Wilson was, he was one of the six. Now, I'm not going to you know, blame people. If you don't know this, this is, you know, it's very few people would know, but you can sort of begin to figure it out. Who do you think, and I'm not asking it as a question for you, Manny, but thinking out loud with everyone in the audience, who were some of the most famous founders? So George Washington did not sign both documents. He only signed the Constitution. He did not sign the Declaration. What about Jefferson? Jefferson, of course, wrote the Declaration with Adams and with, uh, with some others and with Franklin, but the Jefferson did not sign the Constitution because he was in... He was in France at the time. Likewise, Adams, who was very active with the Declaration, was in was uh, was in Europe. He was, I think, the ambassador to England by this time in in the 1787 timeframe. So he only signed the Declaration, not the Constitution. Although Jefferson and Adams, you know, were involved in the process. So uh, here I'm going to answer the question: Who were the six? You know, and, and there are different ways you can describe the founders. But who were the six? Which is the trivia question: Who signed both the Constitution and the Declaration? And the answer is. James Wilson is one of them. Also, Roger Sherman from Connecticut. In fact, Roger Sherman signed four important documents. This would be the Articles of Confederation and the, the Continental Association. If we have time, I'll talk about the Continental Association. Yeah, really. Let the audience give them a little. I mean, I'm uh, I'm confused. What What is the Continental Association in like three words? Okay, so in, in three words, in 1774, the colonies, which were really separate little, you know, little provinces of England, got together and said, listen, we don't like what's going on with Britain, and we're going to boycott. So the Continental Association was an early effort of union at the colonies of, you know, to stand up and boycott England. Uh, so That's in, in cool. Way, so that's like the, it sounds like the, the preeminent uh, Chamber of Commerce, but anyway, <laughs> in a bizarre so way. You only have one individual who signed all four, which is Roger Sherman. But the point is that Wilson signed the two most important, the Declaration and the Constitution. He was one of only six to do that. And rounding out the list, by the way, Ben Franklin signed the Constitution and the Declaration. Robert Morris signed the Declaration and the Constitution. And some of these names you won't recognize, George Clymer of Philadelphia and Roger Reed, or George Reed, rather, of Delaware. Roger Sherman, I mentioned, from Connecticut and James Wilson of Pennsylvania. So those were the six who signed both. So that gives you an idea of how important he was. And that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, Congress, the president, the cabinet, the wives, and I, I mentioned on Statutes and Stories, and let me pause for a moment, that people can follow along with us on the radio. What's our radio station, Manny? Well, live stream is um, WSQFradio.com, and our phone number I will not uh, express to you because I want you to hog up the hour yourself. And we're on 94.5 FM here in South Florida from Key Biscayne south to Palmetto Bay. And then north, you'd have to go live stream WSQFradio.com. So people can live stream us. 
And also you, you save these recorded shows on the WSQF radio station. Yeah, on the, on the your tab, Statues and Stories. Right. And then there's my station, or my, I should say, my website, which is statutesandstories.com, statutesandstories.com, where we blog about these. So the radio show is based upon the blogs. And I just posted a blog today talking about this lecture by George, I'm sorry, by, by, what we're talking about, you know, to Mr. Wilson, Justin, Justin Wilson. Wilson. Right. But James Wilson in, in uh, December. Justice James Wilson. That's a uh, James Wilson. Prototypical American name, I'll tell you. <laughs> so that's what the show is about tonight. And uh, just to round out the list, people can listen to the podcast live. You can do the podcast, you know, in your free time, or you can go and follow along on statutesandstories.com, which is the website where we use primary sources. We use letters from the founders. We use lectures, right? If you want to read the actual lectures and articles and all, all kinds of, we're all about primary sources and, and laws, etc. So uh, that is uh, the background about what we're going to cover tonight. And, you know, I, I mentioned how, you know, in a way, and we don't know this for sure yet, because I only like to rely on the primary sources, not secondary sources. So many have said that, that the, the cabinet was present. I haven't yet found evidence that the cabinet was there. And I'll go through some of the evidence that I found. And I've got access to a lot of databases. And, and here I'd like to joke about how 20 years ago before the Internet, you know, the kind of work I am now doing and really other researchers can easily do using the computer you would have had to travel and fly from one airport to another, from one university or other archive, you know, from the Library of Congress to London to all different locations in D.C. and otherwise to get access to these documents. But today, it's amazing what you can do online. So in only a week's time, we put together this blog about this lecture where Wilson, and this is the inaugural, more background, it's the first lecture instituting this new law program at the College of Philadelphia. And this is in 1790 in Philadelphia and some more of the background. Well, what motivated Wilson to give such a, an incredible, long, and constant lecture series? What was his motivation? Was he uh, kind of like campaigning to be on the Supreme Court, or was it in his retirement? I mean, what in what stage of his life? Question. Excellent, excellent question. So, long story short, he was on the Supreme Court. He was an associate justice. Oh, so, so he gave these lectures as a sitting justice. Wow. So. If anyone wants to go to the website, and I'm, I'm glad for that question, and this gets into why I like to be careful by saying things without it speculating, but I, I give – people can see it for themselves – newspaper articles, because Philadelphia had 10 newspapers, and the, the, a lot of these have been digitized. So I give the invitation – so people can see, and I'll read it to you, or people can go to the website, and here I'm, just, I'm reading from one of, the, you know, one of the advertisements telling people that he's going to be doing this lecture. I'll read it to you. It says, the Honorable Judge Wilson, professor of law in the College and Academy of Philadelphia, will deliver his introductory lecture in the public hall on Wednesday, the 15th of this month at 6 o'clock. Those gentlemen who propose to attend are requested to signify their intentions soon that the necessary preparations may be made for their accommodation. So, you know, this is advertised. So basically everyone came, although the advertisement doesn't tell me that the cabinet went. Then I have a newspaper article afterwards in the Philadelphia Packet and Daily Advertiser. This was written on Saturday, December 25th. So again, these are primary sources. What did the newspaper article say? So this is written a couple of days later. It says, Wednesday evening, the 15th instant, that's how they would describe the most 15th instance of the prior week, the honorary Judge Wilson, law professor in the College of Philadelphia, delivered his introductory lecture in the College Hall. This is where it gets interesting. The President of the United States, with his lady, also the Vice President, and both Houses of Congress, 
the president of both houses of the legislature of Pennsylvania, together with a great number of ladies and gentlemen, were present, the whole composing a most brilliant and respectable audience. So that's why I'm saying I can't prove the cabinet was there. But if you had, you know, this is the newspaper article didn't cover everybody. But if they're telling you that the legislature and president of Pennsylvania, meaning the governor of Pennsylvania, and the president and vice president and Congress were present, you can believe that the cabinet was probably there also. And there are some secondary sources. Some books have said that that um, that you know Hamilton's wife was Eliza Hamilton. So I, and they've people have said that you know Eliza was there with the other wives, and, and Jefferson was the Secretary of State. So I don't have newspaper articles saying that Jefferson attended, nor have I been able to find it in any diaries or correspondence. But it seems to me very likely, and others have said that uh, you know Hamilton was there, Jefferson was there. So you know who did Martha Washington sit next to? Did she sit next to George and Eliza Hamilton, or did she sit next to you know um, Adams' wife? Abigail Adams, you know, it would be very interesting to find out who, who was sitting next to who at this event where the students would sit up, upstairs and, you know, the members of Congress and the, I mean, it's like a State of the Union address almost for this lecture. So you can see why it was cited by President Trump's team because it's, it's very historic. But it wasn't this particular lecture that they cited. He gave, and this gets back to your question, he gave about 58 lectures what? as a professor, a law professor, and this was the inaugural, which is sort of more of a general audience. Do we know? Um, do we know if he was ever elected? Was he also elected or no? I imagine from so, his state. Well, he was selected to be in the Continental Congress. Okay. I think both the first and the second Continental Congress. I don't know if he was a member. Uh, well, remember, oh, the first Congress. Right. So he he wasn't elected to Congress because he was appointed by Washington as one of the first six justices of the Supreme oh, Court. Oh, that that's the answer right there. So right. yeah. So he wasn't a member of Congress, and he died as a Supreme Court justice. He died in 1798. So he's appointed in 1789. He died 1798. So basically, eight or nine years as a Supreme Court justice, he continued to serve. And probably he couldn't afford to get off the court. And we'll talk about the, the tragic circumstances of his death. So I invite people, go to the website, Statutes and Stories. We've got all kinds of links. If you want to read some of these lectures, if you have nothing better to do, or if you just want to see how often does someone get to look at a newspaper article from 1790, right? But yeah, really. <laughs> and, you make it, and, you very, and you make it very accessible to the reader. Well, I, that's, that's the goal of the website, StatutesandStories.com. So you know, why is everyone in Philadelphia? And the answer is, and listeners of this show know, that the first Congress and you know Washington was inaugurated in New York because New York was the location of the first Congress. But one of the major accomplishments of that first Congress was they decided that they were not going to stay in New York. And Hamilton does the horse trading with Jefferson and Madison in order for him to get his debt program through and the assumption of state debts, which we'll talk about another night. You know, that's all about compromises. And the deal that was reached was that Hamilton gets what he wants financially, his financial system. He gets his national bank, he gets his whiskey tax, he gets his taxes, right? But as part of that, and, he, and the federal government takes on all of the state debt from the revolution, but as part of that horse trading, the capital has to leave New York and goes to Virginia area, right? A 10-square-mile area, which today is Washington, D.C. Back then, they called it, they didn't know what to call it, it was the swamp, right? It was a swamp, foggy bottom. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they called it Washington City. It was only later... Or they call it the federal city, then Washington City, then ultimately Washington D.C. Was, was, was it just a, uh, uh, an obvious reason to move it to, uh, to Washington so that it wouldn't be part of any particular state, or did people really want the capital to, you know, leave New York? Excellent, excellent question. So the Constitution contemplated that there would be a capital that would be carved out from the states. 
where it would be its own independent national capital. So that was in the Constitution, but the Constitution left that an important detail for Congress to figure out, which is the location. So obviously the northern states wanted it and to keep it in New York. The southern states wanted it closer. And you know, there, we could spend an entire night, and we've, we've done this on other nights, about why they chose that location near Virginia. And I, I, you know, I think there are all kinds of reasons. There's no one single reason. But George Washington got ill. He's getting older. It made it easier for Washington to be close to Mount Vernon. And also at the time, um, you know, Virginia was closer to the midpoint of the, co- of the colonies. It was a little bit further west, and it, w- it was more centrally located than New York which was a northern state. So it's a compromise. So, so that's the answer. But the reason why I'm mentioning that they were in Philadelphia is because they had just moved. And I mentioned, and let me find it so I can give the specifics. If you go to statutesandstories.com, you'll find I give the dates about how the first session of the first Congress wrapped up. And the deal was that they would reconvene and all of the federal office the federal offices, meaning the Treasury and the War Department and the Secretary of State and, you know, all of the institutions which were just created of the, of the new federal government was to move and reconvene by the first Monday in December. So the, the, the old Congress meeting in New York, they closed up. They did their, their farewell session of that first Congress. And let me give the dates because I have it on the website, which I want to say was in August. So in mid-August is when they wrapped up in New York. They went home, they checked on their families, and then that was in the middle of August, and then they had to meet in December for the new Congress to convene. So let me give you the specific dates. So let's see. Uh, While I'm looking for that. I'll be chirping away. (laughs) You know, it's quite a a thing that today someone would even consider creating statehood for D.C., knowing that all the mines wanted a free, independent capital, free of any... Uh, state power because the obvious people need to come to D.C. without restrictions to protest, to to assemble, to let their voices be heard. And they can't have a city. In fact, they already have a city. But if it were a state, they could literally shut down airports, uh, not issue permits for protests or marches. And I think we're all uh, in America have to seriously consider that that the, you know, the the self-centered uh, desire of having two more senators most likely to be de- in the Democratic Party has to be seriously uh, looked over as uh, the base reasoning for creating statehood for D.C. I know there's a lot of people there and all, but hey, bear with us, man. We need a place where no political power can c- keep us from protesting from uh, um, the, you know, what, what's the, the verbiage about our... our to voice our grievances to the government. Peaceably assembling. Yeah. You're, put, you're putting your finger and you're outlining the argument about why D.C. shouldn't have statehood. Never, and, you know, I can give you the counter-argument that there are more people in D.C. than there are in some of the western states. But, you know, that, that's, that's an issue for perhaps for a later show. But you're, you're outlining what the arguments are. So I, I now thank you for, you know, giving me that moment. So I, I now have, and I'm referring to, it's uh, maybe six or seven paragraphs down on, on, the, on the blog. So I, I, I sort of compare that if people attended the musical, the Hamilton musical, you know about the story and the song, the room where it happened. So that's probably the most famous meeting, right? Other than the signing of the Constitution, where Jefferson and Madison meet with Hamilton and they work out that deal, which would be the Residence Act. And uh, that's the song, the room where it happened. And Burr was not in the room where it happened. So next to that famous meeting, you know, nobody knows, and I didn't know about this lecture and that the entire Congress including some have said the cabinet and the wives and et cetera, attended this lecture by James Wilson. So uh, I'm giving you the setting. 
So the setting is that here are the details that if Jefferson is to believe that that meeting which occurred at his house in New York in Maiden Lane, where he was living at the time, was on June 20th. So they strike a deal June 20th, and there are probably multiple deals and multiple dinners and meetings. But be that as it may, the Residence Act, which established that Washington, D.C. would be located in Washington, D.C., was adopted really pretty quickly thereafter. So June 20th was that meeting, the room where it happened, and July 10th was when the Residence Act was adopted by Congress, and that compromise was also all worked out. And then July 26th, so another week and a half, is when Hamilton's plan for the assumption of the debt was, was adopted. So in June and July, you had all that you know, machinations and all those agreements in, in New York, and the deal says, and let me read it to you, that uh, they have to relocate. Um, let's see, Congress held its farewell session at New York's Federal Hall, and we've talked about Federal Hall in New York. Um, it's, a, it's a famous location where Congress had met at the time. They hold their last meeting in New York on August 13th with the requirement that all federal offices relocate to Philadelphia by the first Monday in December. So, again, that's the time frame. So they're now coming to December you know, to, to now meet in Philadelphia where Congress is going to stay for the next 10 years. Why is there a 10-year period where they're going to be stationed in Philadelphia? The answer is they have to build Washington, D.C. So Adams' presidency uh, was, you know, finished up in New York. I'm sorry, Adams' presidency was in Philadelphia, and Washington's presidency continued in Philadelphia. And Jefferson became the first president who was going to be actually in Washington, which had just been built, the brand-new city of Washington. And it wasn't even a city. It was uh, you know, more of a you – know, they could still see from some of the things I've read that the trees had been cut down. Uh, it was wonderful hunting because it was no, it was the wilderness. It was uh, you know swampy area where, which was uh, you know native, uh, you know whatever you want to call it, new untamed land. It was a brand new city. It was, so, yeah, so, it was very swampy, so it, I'm sure they had issues with disease as they were building the city. Yep. So Washington was very marshy, but that was they they went to Washington in 1800, but now we're 1790, ten years to go, and this is a ten year period. And I'm making the point. That because they had just come to, to 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 Philadelphia, and Philadelphia, by the way, as we set the scene, was the nation's largest city. Philadelphia was larger than New York, and the state of Pennsylvania was one of the largest states. Virginia was a little bit larger. If you you know, a lot of people in Virginia couldn't vote because they were slaves. So Virginia had larger population than Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania had more voters, but it was a, it was a cosmopolitan city. And one of the reasons we know that is that a lot of the diplomats liked Philadelphia. It had 30 bookstores which is impressive, and it had 10 newspapers. And some cities today don't have anywhere close to 10 newspapers. So it was, like, it was, a, it was an important financial trading, you know, whatever you want to call it, public now that, uh, now that you said trading, uh, it, was that the role the Potomac River played in that location? Okay, so for Virginia, the, and I'm not an expert on the geography, but um, you're, you're right that Virginia in the area carved out of Maryland and Virginia on the Potomac is where Washington, D.C. would be located. And you can get there, you know, through through the ocean and then onto the Potomac, and I don't know the specifics, whereas Philadelphia was a port, which is right on the Atlantic Ocean, whereas Washington, D.C., you're right, is further inland up the Potomac. And that was part of Madison's argument that is further west, so it's more accessible for people, especially for Southerners. But what I'm trying to explain is that you know, one of the reasons, perhaps, that everyone was willing to go to this lecture is they had just recently, remember, the lecture is December 15th, and the new Congress convenes, um, you know, everyone is supposed to be there by December, the first Monday in December. So because they had all moved to, to they all moved from New York to Philadelphia, you know, it's possible that they didn't, you know, they're getting to know the city. You know, would, would they do this a year later? I don't know. But, you know, it's an interesting scene, as I keep saying, that you have the Congress, the cabinet, the uh, the, the husbands and wives, the, the legislature of Philadelphia attend this 
greatest lecture by Wilson. So that's why when I heard about it on the radio and they're doing the impeachment trial, I said, I have to find out more. And what I do on the website is I have a sketch of that building where that lecture occurred. And this is the only contemporaneous sketch from that time period. And then subsequent artist renderings and drawings. One of the drawings shows Washington and, and sort of a you know a crowd behind him proceeding, you know, very similar to the sketch because the artist used a sketch to do the, the, the drawing. You know, heading into through the gates uh, to the location of, of the of the you know the university property, the hall where this lecture would occur. So we, we've talked about the scene. I want to talk a little bit about who was James Wilson. So. When he presented his lecture, which was the introductory lecture of what would be ultimately 58 lectures, he was speaking, as we said, as a professor, but also as an associate Supreme Court justice and a highly respected legal authority. And I point out that, not surprisingly, Wilson was known for his reputation as a teaching justice. In other words, his opinions, and he didn't write many, because we'll talk about the Supreme Court, back then they didn't have many cases, right? But his opinions, they were written as if they were lectures, which makes sense, because he was a professor. And as one of the original six justices appointed to the Supreme Court by Washington, you know, these early cases that he would decide provided an opportunity for him to address sections of the Constitution that he helped write, right? So today, lawyers debate about what the legislative intent was or what the congressional intent was. You know, back then, the Supreme Court knew the intent because they were the, many of them, if not all of them, had written the actual document. And even they didn't agree about legislative intent. So that's another conversation for another day about legislative intent and what it really means. So what's the point? What, what, the point here is that Wilson, what was, what was his objectives? What was he famous for? What were his accomplishments? So uh, again, he was interested in having a strong central government. So he stands in the group of, of strong nationalists. So that would be the Madisons and the Hamiltons and the Washingtons and the Grosvenor Morris who wanted a strong federal government that could solve the problems that we had under the Articles of Confederation. So I'm giving you now some statistics and some you know, just trivial information that the people might appreciate that uh, Wilson, when I say knew of what he spoke, as we said, he was one of only six founders that signed the Constitution and the Declaration. And during the summer of 1787, he was on the important committee of detail that prepared the first draft of the Constitution. Hamilton was not on that committee. Madison was not on that committee. But Wilson was on the committee of detail that did the first draft. He also was a drafter of the Pennsylvania Constitution from 1790. And here's more interesting tidbits, his credentials date back all the way to 1774 when he wrote a very important pamphlet. So remember, 1774 is when the colonies hadn't yet declared independence. Now, this is uh, while we're still protesting over tea and when we're boycotting. But the, the pamphlet that he wrote in 1774, which a lot of people thought it was written by Franklin, but it was written by Wilson, was called Considerations on the Nature and Extent of the Legislative Authority of British Parliament. And I've got a link if people wanted to read that, that, that very important pamphlet from 1774. And what he argues in 1774, before the Declaration of Independence, and it's interesting that he was not born in one of the American colonies. He was born in Scotland. And in a way, we've talked about this in other nights, you know, being an immigrant, Hamilton was an immigrant, being an immigrant, that gave him a different little bit of a perspective. And the Scottish were sort of second-class citizens, if you want to call it in England, because, you know, and the Irish also third-class citizens at the time in England. So, you know, he had a perspective of an outsider. And when he wrote his, this important pamphlet, Considerations on the Nature and Extent of Legislative Authority of the British Parliament, he argues under issues of natural law, 
And he argues under popular sovereignty and the rights of Englishmen, because the colonists had rights of Englishmen, that they needed representation. And this is not something that you've not heard before. If, if you don't have representation, you can't have taxation without representation. And he argues that the parliament did not have the ability or the authority, because that's what the pamphlet is about. So he takes this radical position that parliament lacked the authority over the colonies without their consent. If they don't have consent, if they don't have representation, parliament can't force them to do things. If, of course, if the states or the colonies agree with their state legislatures, that's how parliament can get things accomplished. But, you know, he was a radical from the standpoint of standing up to parliament. Also, I want to point out that in that pamphlet, uh, I'm going to read some language which you're going to recognize this because it gets used by Jefferson. So in this pamphlet, he writes, all men are by nature equal and free. No one has a right to any authority over another without his consent. So I'm not going to read it all. But when you hear that language, all men by nature are equal and free. Unalienable rights, baby. That's right. So Wilson, in his pamphlet in 1774, and all historians, I won't say all, but many agree that Jefferson was borrowing from Wilson when Jefferson writes in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are rights, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, etc., so Jefferson was borrowing from Wilson, and actually the, the Continental Congress changed Jefferson's original language a little bit. And here I'm going to give you some quotes, really getting in the weeds. So Jefferson would use passages from Wilson as the source for the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. And I'm going to quote you now from Jefferson's original rough draft. So Jefferson's original rough de- draft of the Declaration, which was tweaked by Franklin and some of the others, so the original rough, rough, I'm sorry, the rough draft of Jefferson provided that we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, not, not the way it's currently written. He, he said, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal and independent. So we think that he took that, and it's not me, but other historians think that he took those ideas from Wilson and from Wilson's considerations pamphlet. All right, so what else? This gives you an idea that he was having these thoughts and plowing paths in 1774, uh, what else and why other why other reasons can we give that? And I've got some pictures of him so you can see what he looked like. Other reasons why he's important. And we talked about the committee of uh, detail. So during the convention, Wilson stood out as one of the ardent nationalists. And with the exception of Gruvner Morris, and we did a show on Gruvner Morris, who's also one of my favorite founders, no delegate spoke more at that convention than Wilson. So that the two busybodies or the two most outspoken, and you know, some founders hold their you know hold their their uh, cards close to the vest. Gruvner Morris spoke you know, more than anybody, and then Wilson was the second. And you can, you can count this, because we have Madison's notes. So Wilson spoke 168 times, starting on May 31st, and he waited a while, the first couple of days, before he spoke out loud at the convention. But once he started speaking, once he got a feel for what was going on, he spoke every single day, and he, starting on May 31st until the last day of the convention, which was September 17th, which people may remember as Constitution Day. So every day he's speaking, he's very active in the debates. Among, among other things, Wilson was a believer in national authority based on popular sovereignty. We can talk about what popular sovereignty is, but that the rights are coming from the people, and popular sovereignty is the government answers to the people. Wilson also advocated for a single national executive, and that was not clear at the time. There were some who were proposing that you would have three presidents who worked together, and that was something that you had in Rome and in, uh, in Greece. Uh, you had different versions and permutations of a, of a tripartite executive. Instead, we got a tripartite or a three-part checks and balances and division of labor between the Congress, the president, and the courts. But there were some who wanted three presidents working together. So Wilson was one who wanted a single national executive with veto power, so a strong president, 
He wanted them to be elected for one-year terms, but eligible for re-election. And as we've talked about before, the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan, he was from Pennsylvania. So the delegates of Pennsylvania you know, worked behind the scenes with Madison and the Virginia plan. And it's interesting on the timing that the Constitutional Convention was supposed to start, I think, on May 10th. But there was a delay by a lot of the delegates from some of the further states arriving. So that gave an opportunity for Virginia and Madison, the Virginia delegation, to confer with the Pennsylvania delegation. And because Wilson was from Pennsylvania, he's in Philadelphia. So that in, in some of these conversations, and we don't know all the details, we just know, you know broad outlines. Wilson was probably meeting along with some of the other Pennsylvanians with Madison because they had similar interests in having and remember, the small states like a New Jersey or a Delaware, they wanted equal representation. Each state has one vote, whereas the larger states, and that was a problem, by the way, under the articles that the small states in Rhode Island in particular were wreaking havoc, whereas Pennsylvania and Virginia, which were large states, wanted proportional representation, which eventually became the House of Representatives, and the small states got what they wanted with the Senate. So again, you know, he's very important in some of these early discussions with Virginians, and uh, some historians credit Wilson with coining the phrase, so let me pause this real quickly, one of the most important phrases in the entire Constitution is in the preamble of the Constitution, we the people, right, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, etc. So the preamble of the Constitution, written by Gruvner Morris, who we just talked about, so by Gruvner Morris, that that phrase, we the people, may have actually come from, although it was used by Morris, may have come from Wilson. And there are historians who debate about that actual, who, who phrased. So pl- we've, been, we've been plagiarizing since the beginning. <laughs> right. And I wouldn't call it plagiarizing. I would call it, you know, you're, you're working together and you're finding something good and then improving it and using it. Right. And that's you know, what happens when you bring together great minds, borrowing from other you know, important documents. You take the best of the breed or the best of the best. All right, so here's from Madison's notes on May 31st, the first day where Wilson talks. And I won't read it all. I invite people to click on some of the links. But Madison summarizes what Wilson is saying on May 31st, which gives you an idea of what he wanted to accomplish. So here is Madison summarizing Wilson. So Madison says, Wilson contended strenuously for drafting the most numerous branch of the legislature immediately from the people. In other words, the, the House of Representatives from the people. He was for raising the federal pyramid to a considerable altitude, and for that reason, wish to give it as a broad basis as possible. No government could long subsist without the confidence of the people. In the Republican government, this confidence was particularly essential. He wanted popular sovereignty, confidence of the people. He also thought it wrong to increase the weight of the state legislatures by making them the electors of the national legislature. So he did not want the state choosing senators. And he lost on that point, but then eventually he prevailed because we provide for now direct election of senators. Oh, now i got to say something I posted today. This election is a clear example. I don't know if it's the first example, but it's a clear example. This federal election with its controversy is a clear example of the dire and negative consequences of the state legislatures not having the power to recall senators who could have and should have decertified electoral votes if they felt there was fraud in their states. And, and subject to being recalled if, if their state legislators were in disagreement with them. But this is one of those cases where we look to higher power, us, the people, we the people, and the Senate had to just cross their hands and, and do nothing. They had no they had no recourse. All they could do was propose amendments to decertify or question the results. But without that recall power, you could see how the Senate has difficulty over such matters. And I, I posted that today on Facebook. I thought it was 
important now that you mentioned it. Perhaps, and you can see these original ideas were coming from Philadelphia, 1787. So I actually disagree with you, but we'll do another show about that. I think the senators, by having six-year terms, are supposed to sort of be, I won't call them demigods, but supposed to be somewhat independent. And it's important that they're, you know, they're subject to re-election every six years, and justices of the court are in lifelong tenure. Yeah, but so I, wait, I wait, time out. But don't you think that the states um, have—don't you think the Senate should represent the interests of the actual state, not necessarily the interests of its general pop- population? That's what the House is for. See, that's the part. This is the debate, and I won't say there's a right answer, and originally— you're right that the states could recall the senators because the state legislatures did choose senators. Right, um, but I but think he, it was a, don't you agree that, that the framers wanted the states to have states' rights? In other words, you know, the beach, uh, oranges in our case, Florida, the beach, oranges, tourism, stuff like that, as opposed to a Midwest state that that would be cattle ranching, feed, quality of feed, schooling uh, of of you know animal science, as opposed to finances of New York, you know. These things were very important, and I think you and I must agree that you can't disagree on this point, that the average American citizen doesn't really delve into state politics because it's not of interest to them, and yet it's probably the most impact in their lives to know who your state senator is, to know who your uh, state representative, and to really want to see your party have majorities for the purposes of selecting a senator to you know, it's a certain symbiosis there that is lost because of Amendment 17. It's very sad. And we had an intellect, I can't remember his name, a couple of years ago. Um, I had like a little tit for tat with him. Obviously, he had the pedigree, so he felt like he was smarter than I was. But he believed that the Amendment 17 had something to do with the passage of 16, that 17 was almost a must to allow the people to vote directly for senators uh, otherwise, it would have been an apportioned tax, the progressive income tax, and I never really agreed with it, but that was the logic I received at the time. And Amendment 17, as far as I'm concerned, as well as 16, should be repealed. So We will, con- we will continue that conversation, but you're right. These are core issues, and you, know, you, you disagree here with Williams. Oh, I'm sorry, with, um, with James, James Wilson. Wilson. And the, the, the point is that, you know, he didn't get all he wanted. There are a lot of things you'll agree with him. And this is an example where you disagree with him. But um, what, what's my, you know, my don't point? You, don't you that, honestly feel that senators, once they get elected by the people, they're kind of easily bought once they get to D.C. And you can see how corporate uh, interests become more important to a senator than, say, a House member who has to win in a smaller district. And the senators, I think the robber barons, uh, knew this of themselves and said it was just too expensive to buy a senator when you had to buy the legislatures first to appoint one. They'd rather just buy you once you got elected by the people. And that's, I think, it's shown true, especially in this election. So, so reasonable minds can differ. We'll, we'll continue the conversation. I think the Senate to be the nation's and the world's most deliberative body. I like them to have some degree of independence. But, you know, people can, uh, reasonable minds can differ. But I, I want to get to the issue of how. Wilson was described by others. And one of the founders who didn't take daily notes like Madison, but he he kept sort of a description of all of, a lot of the founders had never met each other before. Some of them knew each other, they knew of each other, but many of them had not met each other before. So one of the one of the founders in Philadelphia was William Pierce. And he little did these little minuets or little descriptions of many of the others. And he described, I'll quote it, he described Williams as follows. He says, Mr. William, Mr. Wilson ranks among the foremost in legal and political knowledge. I'm skipping ahead. Government seems to have been his peculiar study. All the political institutions of the world he knows in detail. 
and can trace the causes and effects of every revolution from the earliest stages of the Grecian Commonwealth down to the present time. So according to George Pierce, I'm sorry, William Pierce, you know, he's describing Wilson as you know, a pretty bright guy. Also, I'm going to quote quickly from Benjamin Rush, uh, who was another signer of the Declaration of Independence, and Benjamin Rush describes Wilson as a blaze of light. So, you know, when, when these group of uh, you know very influential founders are describing someone as a blaze of light, that's that's who we're talking about. All right. So, we talked about how, in addition to drafting the Constitution, he also played an important role now in the ratification process because there was no guarantee that the Constitution is going to get ratified. So, there was a very important speech that Wilson gave on October 6, 1787. And uh, I, I follow on Facebook and otherwise the Center for the Study of the American Constitution. This is the University of Wisconsin. And they have spent, and I talked about this another night, I think they're up to like 33 or 34 volumes putting together all of the important documents relating to the ratification. And one of the most important documents on the ratification of the Constitution was this speech that Wilson gives. It's referred to as the State House Yard Speech on October 6, 1787. And when we talk about ratification, man, you watch the papers that everybody knows about from the Hamilton musical written by Hamilton Jay and Madison. Oh, wait a minute. The, the Federalist Papers? Right. So everybody knows about the Federalist Papers. Oh, I thought papers. you were asking me an actual number, and I was going to get, oops, <laughs> no, I can't nope. do that. No, nope, you, you got it. The, everyone knows the Federalist Papers because, you know, you, people study them a little bit in school, and you know, people know about the Federalist Papers. But Federalist Papers were important in New York, but they were not super influential outside of New York. But Wilson's speech that he gave, and the Federalist Papers are written a year later or so, in, in 1788. But the speech that Wilson gives, and the way it would work back then, is one newspaper publishes something, especially if it's a Philadelphia newspaper, within the next couple of weeks, all the other newspapers, if it's important, reprint it. So Wilson's speech, again, the State House Yard speech on October 6, 1787, is recognized as one of the most important defenses and the first defense of the Constitution, more important than the Federalist Papers many think. So what does he say in this early speech? He argues that the Constitution was not a threat to the states, because remember, the anti-Federalists are going to start raising havoc and saying that you know, this federal government's going to run amok. So he argued that the Constitution was not a threat to the states, and the federal government's taxing power, which is one of the sources of dispute, uh, was necessary as a matter of national security. As described by Wilson, the Constitution's opponents were self-interested beneficiaries of the status quo. So he's saying that uh, Wilson, Wilson is saying that, uh, and he doesn't give names, but the governor of New York, which is Clinton, and some of those in Virginia who are opposing the Constitution later, they're interested in protecting the nice thing they have going in their own states where, you know, they're their own bosses. So that's a lot of the reluctance, he's arguing, to the Constitution is coming from those that want to maintain the status quo, meaning the current system that we have, which is falling apart under the Articles of Confederation. As described by Wilson, the Constitution's opponents were self-interested, according to historian Gordon Wood. So today, people aren't as familiar with Gordon Wood, but 20, 30 years ago, Wood was a very leading historian. So according to Gordon Wood, the speech was nothing short of, quote, the basis of, basis of all federalist thinking. So Gordon Wood and others re really recognize, and Kaminsky from the, the Center for the Study of the American Constitution recognized that Wilson's speech in October 1787 was very important and was uh, well-known. You know, people probably knew him for that speech, among other things. So this is the guy that's going to be giving this lecture, which brings us back to December 15th. So let me skip ahead. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about while he's on the Supreme Court, this is a couple of years later, they didn't have many decisions that they had to reach because it takes a while for a case to make it up to the Supreme Court. And most of the time, the Supreme Court justices were traveling around the country on their circuits, handling the more routine 
and it was not easy to travel on, on your circuit because you were away from home. And today, the Supreme Court justices, they just stay in, in Washington, D.C. at the Supreme Court. They don't have to travel. But back then, they used to have to travel, and it was not yeah, easy. Yeah, horse, horse and buggy, that's, that's what we talked about. Uh, reminds me of the day I, uh, I mentioned that the first commission art piece was actually uh, done that was not really true because the founding fathers never were all together all at once signing the Constitution or the uh, Declaration because because of the travel and the, and the arduous methods in which they all got to D.C. It was very difficult. Or in this case, it would have been, I guess, New York. Um, well, September 17th, the, I think it was 37, signed the Constitution on September 17th. But, you know, right, that uh, you know, the judges were traveling and that was part of the job, which is why a lot of them didn't stick around for very long. Because it was so well, wait, wait a minute. You're saying that 37 people were together all at once on one particular day to sign the document, or they came so in? There were, there were 54 attendees at the Constitutional Convention. And if memory serves, don't quote me, I think 37 of them, or it could be 34, but in the 30s, signed the Constitution on September 17th, which was the last day of the Constitutional Convention. That's the day where Franklin gives his, and there's something else I'll mention, the day that Franklin gave his important speech, which I don't quote in this post, I quote it otherwise, but uh, Franklin is famous for, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on Franklin, but Franklin basically says that, you know, this Constitution is not perfect. He says, uh, there are things I disagree with, there are things that you disagree with, but it's as perfect as we're going to get. And that's the wisdom of a Franklin, and he says it in more of a poetic kind of humorous kind of a way. Yeah, he was very eloquent. He was very eloquent and a very well-respected guy. But he had, because he was suffering from, I think, gout and all kinds of other ailments, and it was hard for him to speak loudly. So guess who you think? And here it's going to be a very easy answer. And he's from Philadelphia, just like Franklin. Guess who Franklin has read his speeches at the Philadelphia Convention, at the Constitutional Convention? Oh, jeez. He's from, our guy, huh? Our guy from tonight. Oh, Wilson! Oh, see. Wilson. Oh, right. I didn't so know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have known that. Is. Yeah, that tells you how important he is. That Franklin uses Wilson to read all of his speeches that were written by Franklin to be read by another person. So, you know, oh, yeah. he was the mouthpiece for Franklin. Wow! How about that? Uh, how about that? All right. So, but a lot of people listening are probably not understanding the, the the magnitude of the reach of Mr. Wilson. That's right. So, his most important case, or his most famous case as a Supreme Court justice, 1793, Chisholm versus Georgia. And when we write about the, there were different amendments to the Constitution. We talked about earlier the 17th Amendment, the 16th Amendment, the 11th Amendment, which was the first amendment after the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is the first 10 amendments. The 11th Amendment, obviously, is right after the first 10. That was in 1795. So the 11th Amendment reversed his decision in Chisholm versus Georgia. And what did he decide? This is very far afield from what we're talking about, but just to throw it out there, the Chisholm case held that individuals could sue states in federal court. And they did not like that. And they amended the Constitution to reverse what Wilson wrote, because Wilson was a strong federal government guy, and he thought if you're owed money by a state, you should be able to sue them. And the 11th Amendment says, no, you cannot sue a state in federal court. You have to sue them in the state court. You can't sue them in federal court if you are a resident of another state. And that's the 11th Amendment. And there are some exceptions, but uh, that's a very detailed subject for another day. So what else can I tell you? Well, you're piling up the other days, you know what I mean? We're going to have like a month of... Stuff we have to talk on another day. <laughs> we got to be just so much. We haven't even gotten to the lecture yet, right? All right, well, so... get to the lecture. You're down to 14 minutes. 
right. So a little bit more about Wilson's background. So we're, we're building up Wilson. He's a guy that reads his, reads speeches for Franklin. He signs both the Declaration and the Constitution. He's appointed as one of the first six to the Supreme Court by Washington. Right. So he served on the Supreme Court from 1789 until he dies in 1798, and he dies at the age of 55. And here's the tragedy here. So tragically, Wilson's final years were punctuated by financial difficulties and failed land speculation. So unable to pay off and renegotiate some of his large debts, uh, which he owned land in western Pennsylvania and New York and Georgia. You know, he thought the country would grow a lot quicker than it did. He thought more immigrants would be coming. So he got wiped out by the panic of 1796. Back then they called them panics. They didn't call them recessions or depressions. So the panic of 1796, 1797 wipes him out. So he suffered the fate of several other founders. And if we have a moment, we can talk about Roger, Robert Morris. We can talk about Lighthorse Harry Lee, who also spent time in debtor's prison near the end of their lives. And what's really sad about this is Wilson is a Supreme Court justice, right? He is in debt, and he is put in debtor's prison, and he gets bonded out, and others help him pay so he can be released. But imagine a justice of the Supreme Court who was such a giant having to spend part of his, you know, and, and toward the end of his life, running away from creditors who were chasing after him. And that's where he dies. He dies in North Carolina of a heart attack. And he tries to go to the house of one of the other justices. And um, you know, he, so you know, he's from Pennsylvania, and he, he winds up getting buried in North Carolina, away from where his family is, because that's where he died. And then one of my favorite historians, who is also a, one of my favorite, I should say, presidents, who is also a historian, is Teddy Roosevelt. So in 1906, Teddy Roosevelt sparked renewed interest in Wilson, and Roosevelt is you know, sort of studying all the contributions of Wilson because he appreciated Wilson for all kinds of reasons. And when the Pennsylvania's capital was, was rededicated in Harrisburg, because originally they were in Philadelphia, they moved to Harrisburg. So when they built this new Pennsylvania capital in Harrisburg, um, Roosevelt, because he gave attention to Wilson, Wilson's remains were removed and reinterred in Philadelphia, in the old Christ Church in Philadelphia, you know, with the rest of his family. But it took Wilson, uh, you know, having died, this is 1906, it took President Teddy Roosevelt to bring attention to Wilson for Wilson to be brought home to Philadelphia because he died in North Carolina. So that's a tragic end. But he was still a Supreme Court justice when he died. So you know, that, that's a little footnote to his legacy. Yeah, and that <laughs> reminds me of mentioning the story of Oliver Pollock, who was commissioned by the Continental Congress to raise monies, however he could, to get weapons to the Continental Army during the war. And he moved up and down the Mississippi River in some fashion uh, doing uh, unethical things in terms of uh, you know, buying slaves that he never paid for and reselling them up the river, down the river, to get money for these weapons. And the weapons were facilitated by Colonial Cuba, and, and some of the money was funded by Colonial Cuba. And I believe, and I'm pretty certain that I am correct, that the first foreign emissary to make a plea to the first free American uh, Congress of the new United States was uh, Admiral Bernardo Galvez, who facilitated Oliver Pollock. And he was sitting in a, in a Havana jail for the same reasons, uh, debts. And he pleaded with the Congress of the United States to uh, pay off his debt so that I could release him from jail. They agreed that on that very day. I think they signed a, uh, a, a creed or a proclamation to do just that. And Galvis was honorable enough to release Andrew Pollock way before the money was actually uh, paid off. So 
I can see how this Wilson story really resonates with people because uh, the the Declaration really stands for something. People pledge their sacred honors um, for the independence of this nation, and sadly, a lot of people died in debt and broke. You know, kind of like living under the bridge, like we say. And by the way, when you mentioned Galvez today, there's a city in Texas. You want to mention it? Uh, Galveston, Texas. Galveston, Texas is named after Galvez. Yes. You're you're absolutely right. I don't know the details, but the Spanish were fighting the British on the western frontier in the Mississippi River. Yeah, controlling it, keeping the British from entering it. If they enter it, it's over for the United States. I mean, it would be attack on the north from the Atlantic and then from the west through the river. That would be a supply chain that could never be overcome. So Galvez was fighting in Pensacola. This is western parts of Florida. It was very long back then. Yes. Extended in Alabama and Mississippi, the Florida Territory. So, uh, you know, there's no doubt that the British were being uh, confronted not just by the American colonists in in the 13 colonies, but by the Spanish on the western side and, of course, by the French and uh, the French assistance, which was pivotal. And as you said, Cuban gold and, and assistance coming out of the Caribbean. All right. So. We are now moving over to the address. Oh, totally. and don't forget about gunpowder being carried over the shoulders of slaves in the Itmus Peninsula, which is today's Panama, um, uh, keeping the powder dry. That's where that word comes from, that, or that statement. And Galvez, uh, I guess, uh, assured Washington uh, gunpowder as well for his for his cannons. So, uh, you know, Galvez did a considerable amount of of cannon fire there to keep the British from entering the Mississippi. And uh, I imagine the gunpowder was also necessary for other forms of warfare um, and musket. And uh, what's uh, the musket called again? The musket, right? Didn't that, uh, did you have to pour the, the gunpowder into the musket the rifle? muskets. Yes. Right. So, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful story. But in the end, um, you know, so many people uh, really pledged their sacred fortunes for the independence of this nation, and we should never forget. So that is the sad footnote to how he winds up dying. And it wasn't just him, as we said, uh, that uh, you know, we're, we're heroes who wound up in poverty, having, uh, having lost it all for various reasons. So we're getting to this lecture. We're now going back to 1790, December 15th. So Professor James Wilson, who was a Supreme Court justice, speaking before Congress, before the president, before Martha Washington, probably before the cabinet, etc., gives this speech, which was the first of a series of 58 lectures that he prepared as the first professor of law at the College of Philadelphia. And if people were curious, what was the first college of law? And it's William and Mary in Virginia. We can talk about that another night. So his lecture series <coughs> offers a wide-ranging analysis of legal systems going back to the Greeks and to the Greeks and the Romans. He covers an array of subjects, including natural law. We'll talk about if we have time about natural laws, common law, international law. And his final lecture. He covers the new constitution, which makes sense because he starts with the you know old antiquity and he brings it all the way forward. And his final lectures were about, which makes sense, the American constitution, which he knew a lot about, right? And that's what gets cited. So one of his last lectures by the Trump defense lawyers, and I'll, I'll give some quotes to it, and people can see it if they go to the website statutesandstories.com. So, interestingly, that the inaugural letter or the the lecture advertisements don't mention that he was a Supreme Court justice. Some of them say he's a judge, but don't say he's a justice. So a copy below, I have copies of you know, some of the mastheads, which is the, the part of the top of the newspaper, so you can see the date and which the, the name of the newspaper was. So I've got some of the newspaper articles, or the advertisements also. So again, he's speaking to, on the first lecture to a broad audience, including invited guests. It's likely, as we said, that several prominent women attended, and I mentioned that I'm not sure if Eliza was there, but it's likely that Eliza Hamilton was there, 
uh, along with some others, and I can, we can speculate who they were. But it's clear that since they were living in Philadelphia, in the nation's capital, we probably had Attorney General Randolph, we probably had Secretary Warnock, we probably had Jefferson, we probably had Hamilton. I'm just trying to throw it out to, to verify, connect the dots that they were actually there before I say they were there. All right, so how does he begin his lecture? And he begins the lecture, interestingly, so he had a sense of humor, by describing that he was pleased to speak before an audience which included women. And so back then it was rare that you know, women would be in an audience like this, especially if these are all the congressmen are present. So I'm going to quote you from the first paragraph of his lecture. Here's the quote, and people can read this on their own in more detail. He says, ladies and gentlemen, though I am not unaccustomed to speak in public, yet on this occasion I rise with much diffidence to address you. So he's saying I'm shy to address you. The character in which I appear is both important and new. Anxiety and self-distrust are natural on my first appearance. These feelings are greatly heightened by another consideration, which operates with peculiar force. I never before had the honor of, he says, the honor. I never before had the honor of addressing a fair audience. So you and I, what does he mean? A fair audience? He's talking about having women in the audience. So he's, he's saying, I'm a little shy talking to this audience of men and women for the first time. He says, I address a fair audience so brilliant as this is. So he's complimenting the women, including Martha Washington, and I say probably Eliza Hamilton. So he says, I, I address a fair audience so brilliant as this is. There is one encouraging reflection, however, which greatly supports me. The whole of my very respectable audience is as much distinguished by its politeness as a part of it is distinguished by its brilliancy. From this politeness, I shall receive what I feel I need, an uncommon degree of generous indulgence. So he's saying, give me an, your indulgence as I, as I go through this lecture and cover these subjects. I won't keep reading it, but you know, he gets now into more serious subjects about popular sovereignty and some of the buzzwords and topics he likes to talk about. So how do we know about this lecture? And the answer is, we have the newspaper articles talking about it, and there are pieces of it that were published. And man, you'll remember maybe six months ago, we talked about the American Museum magazine by Matthew Carey. Uh, I'm, I, you got me there. I, 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 regularly, uh, I can't give you details of the memory of it, but please carry on. Right. So remember, or, you know, some of our viewers may remember, and you can go to statutesandstories.com, one of the most important magazines in this time period, which was a national magazine, would take newspaper articles that were important and lectures and you know, other important subjects, and it would republish them in magazine format, and it went out of business after six years, but it was called the American Museum. We think American Museum, you know, Museum of Natural History, but the magazine was called the American Museum. So some of his lectures were published in the American Museum magazine. And by the way, the American Museum magazine published the Federalist Papers, published Wilson's speech, uh, the State House speech, the schoolyard speech, State Yard speech. So, you know, and I give links so people can actually read portions of it. But and that would have been published in newspapers and magazines contemporaneously. But a year later, so in 1791, his first couple, I think it was 13 or so lectures were published. Uh, he had it published in Philadelphia by a publisher, T. Dobson. And the title of that publication is called An Introductory Lecture to a Course of Law Lectures. So that's published in 1791. I don't have the link yet, but I'll be putting it on hopefully once I, once I get the link. And uh, what that does is uh, and once he gets it printed, and there weren't that many that were printed, he engraves one or inscribes it, and the Historical Society of Philadelphia and I reached out to them in the last week. They have a copy that he inscribes to Martha and to George. So you can imagine the, the copy that was given to the president is evidence of this lecture that took place on December 15th. So um, you know, I'll, I'll be putting that link up when I have it, but I do have other links so people can read some of these lectures. 
also his son. His son's name was Bird Wilson. So the father is James Wilson. The son is Bird Wilson. And it's a peculiar name. You know, who names their son Bird? But that was the wife's name. So he names his son the maiden name of his wife, and her last name was Bird. So his son, Bird Wilson, who became a lawyer, published when his father died, a couple of years after his father dies, in 1804, publishes all of his lectures. So this is the document that was actually cited by Trump's lawyers, the 1804 version of the later lectures, not the first lecture. And let's now talk about, because we have a few minutes left. You got so I'm three, you got three you. minutes. Go for three it. Minutes. I'm going to read you, and here's the date, February 12th. On February 12th, and I have the wrong day, it's the 20, February 12th, 2021, President Trump's attorney, and it was Michael Vanderveen, cited Wilson's lectures. And he argued, this is a quote from the attorney Vanderveen, argued that, quote, lawful and constitutional conduct may not be used as an impeachable offense. That's what Trump's lawyers are arguing, among other things, that lawful conduct and constitutional conduct <laughs> cannot be used as the basis of an impeachment. So they cite Wilson's lectures, and it's on pages 40 and 41. Can you be a little bit more specific of what he used to defend Trump? I, I will read you from Wilson, and I give a link that people can actually read from the trial brief, because when the attorneys submit you know, materials, they, they submit briefs. So pages 40 and 41 of Trump's trial brief, and I give a, a, a link, has this following quotation, which I'm going to read. So they quote from Wilson, and this is the quote that they try to use to defend Trump. They say the following from Wilson. The doctrine of impeachment is of high import in the constitutions of free states. There's no doubt about that. You know, constitutions are important, and the doctrine of impeachment is important. So he continues. On one hand, the most powerful magistrates, and magistrates is another word for presidents or executives, the most powerful magistrates should be amenable to the law. On the one hand, they should follow the law, should be amenable to the law. On the other hand, elevated characters should not be sacrificed merely on account of their elevation. So what does that mean? Probably means they shouldn't uh, get, you know, they should just because they're elevated, they shouldn't be sacrificed because of their higher status. No one should be secure while he violates the Constitution and the laws. So he's, he's showing both sides. No, no one should be secure while he violates the Constitution. But then he says, and this is the part that they emphasize, the Trump defense, everyone should be secure while he observes them. So their argument is that as long as he's doing something constitutionally, he can't be impeached for that. And they tried to make the argument that he was just doing protected speech. So you shouldn't be impeached for protected speech in First Amendment. That was the argument that Trump's team was making. So I won't go into details on the refutation, but I do give a link to the House manager's reply brief so you can see what the House managers have to say about that. But the point is that, you know, when you, you don't have much authority on impeachments, there's only been, you know, a handful of impeachments of presidents. You do have a lot of impeachments of other executive branch officials and judges, right? So impeachments is nothing new. But when you're talking about the impeachment of a president, you know, what better source than to go back to Wilson, to go back to the Federalist Papers, which were cited at length during the impeachment trial, right? So, you know, these are fair documents to look at. Now, did, did Wilson ever make the claim that the Republicans made to, uh, this week? That the biggest uh, the biggest hurdle to to climb was to prove that the Senate even had jurisdiction to impeach someone who's no longer in office, because the last right. two times that they fired impeachments against people who were no longer in office were cited by the House managers, and both those failed. So, um, I'm, 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 am I to assume that they they were they failed on the same grounds that they just didn't the Senate didn't believe it had constitutional right to impeach someone who already out of office? Or so did Wilson that, not? That was, 
the, oh, that Wilson. was a show we did another night, and I invite people to go to Statutes and Stories, and we, we talk about that uh, from another night. But Wilson doesn't discuss the jurisdiction. Oh, okay, that's the answer. So they use this one sentence from the paragraph I read, and I'll read it again. No one should be secure while he violates the Constitution. So if you violate the Constitution or the laws, you should not be secure. And then he says, colon, everyone should be secure while he observes them. So if you're following the law, you should be secure. So, you know, it, it's sort of a circular argument, and I don't think it's really that, that useful for the defense. But nevertheless, they cited Wilson for this idea you know, that they're saying he was just using free speech and his protected speech, they argued, means that he can't be impeached. I, I don't know that. I think they're sort yeah, of— Yeah, that uh, was like a, a, a runaround because if I didn't catch it the first time, I'm sure the average citizen didn't either. Right. So let me give you part of the refutation. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example that I think the House managers used. Uh, you know, the, the president has a lot of authority and he can declassify pretty much whatever he wants. Right. So here's an example that, that it is, again, the president's defense team, without going into the weeds, is arguing that as long as he's allowed to say it, he can say whatever he wants. You can't impeach him for speech. That was their argument. Right. Correct. Uh, but a lot of crimes can be committed with speech. And the specific example, if I remember correctly, that they give is if the president who can declassify were to go to Putin or to an enemy and give them classified information resulting in you know spies being captured. Well, wait a minute. Not give them classified, declassifying something so right. that Putin has access to it. Right. So if the president were to declassify all of our national security and to give the Russians all of our codes, that's free speech. The president has the right to do it, right? Then you're saying defense or the president's team that you can't be impeached for doing that? That's, that's yeah, lawful. That's a, that's a real, that's that's a really good, uh, yeah, it's a good case. Right. So, so in other words, the, the Venn diagrams, and maybe this is where we can conclude, and I don't want to spend Especially so much time a lame duck president in his second term in his last year give Putin all our codes. Uh. So, in other words, if we looked at it mathematically, right, with Venn diagrams, just because something is illegal doesn't mean it's impeachable. You know, a traffic offense, maybe a speeding ticket, et cetera, might be illegal, doesn't mean it's impeachable. And just because it's free speech, is protected doesn't mean that it's not impeachable. So there, there's more comp- it's more complicated than that. And ultimately, it's a decision for the Senate uh, to, to decide. And I agree, getting back to where we started, that it is useful to look at these primary authorities dating back to Wilson, dating back to the Federalist Papers, dating back to the debates on the Constitution. So it is always a pleasure to discuss these topics. And I invite people to go to statutesandstories.com, where you've got all kinds of good links where you can read. And here's one other I'll just throw it out yet. So Adams, who was the vice president, John Adams, this is an example of letters, right? John Adams wanted his son, Charlie Adams, to become a lawyer. So guess what? Adams writes a letter to his son saying, on December 15th, I want you to attend, right? So if you wanted to read that letter from Adams to his son, inviting him to attend some of the lectures, uh, these are all the sorts of things that we delve into on statutesandstories.com. Wow. Well, that's it for the Blink Radio Statutes and Stories version. And thank you all for listening. I'm yours truly, Mac and The Rock on Twitter and Mac on The Rock on Instagram. And Adam, thank you for your time. Here we go. WSQF Blink Radio.